Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. It's hard to come to an alumni weekend without thinking about the issue of remembering, of memories, of whether or not we remember people. <laughs> I was reminded this morning greeting you as you came into worship of what Anita and I heard Dr. Floyd Brzee say one Sabbath many years ago at a Walla Walla alumni weekend. He stood up and he said, some of you have changed so much you didn't even recognize me. <laughs> if you happen to be married, you probably have that secret arrangement with your spouse and if I'm talking to someone and you walk up and I don't introduce you, that means I don't know who they are. I don't know their name. So please introduce yourself, and that will force them to say their name. So much for the secret. But I suspect that over these days that we are together, that will be a reality time and time again. The two words, remember when will probably be stated over and over again. And it will test our memories, won't it? Our ability to recall. So maybe a story or two is in order. It is said that the great German philosopher, George Wilhelm, Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, was approached at one point in time with a pupil who had something in hand that Hegel had written many years before. He approached Hegel and said to him, I have a question for you. I've been reading this and rereading it, and I, I, I don't understand it. It came from your pen. Can you explain it to me? And he handed it to Hegel. Hegel looked at it, read it thoughtfully, and finally said, My dear sir, when this was written, there were only two who understood it. Myself and God. <laughs> Alas, now there's only one. <laughs> and that is God. <laughs> <laughs> it 
It's rough when you don't even remember the meaning of what you yourself wrote. Oh, I ran across this story, this story from the pen of a Presbyterian minister, Pastor Roger Smith in Seattle, Washington, who writes this. We were traveling one summer in the Pocono Mountains, and like a good Presbyterian family, we attended church while we were on vacation. One lazy Sunday, we found our way, however, to a little Methodist church. It was a hot day, and the folks were nearly passed out in the pews. The preacher was droning on and on until all of a sudden he said, the best years of my life have been spent in the arms of another man's wife. Well, congregation let out a gasp, came to immediate attention. The dozing deacon in the back row dropped his hymn book. And then the preacher said, it was my mother. <laughs> well, the congregation tittered a bit and managed to follow along till the sermon finally concluded. I filed that trick away in my memory as a great way to get a congregation's attention back after it had been lost. And sure enough, the next summer, on a lazy Sunday, I was preaching and the flies were buzzing around and the ushers were sinking lower and lower in their seats in the back row until I could hardly see them. Then I remembered suddenly the experience in the Pocono Mountains and I said in a booming voice, the best years of my life have been spent in the arms of another man's wife. Sure enough, I had their attention. One of the ushers in the back row sat up so fast he hit his head on the back of the pew in front of him. <laughs> I had them. But you know something? I forgot what came next. <laughs> All I could think to say was, and for the life of me, I can't remember her name. <laughs> <laughs> There are some stories, the punchline to which you cannot forget, <laughs> they test our memory. So I suspect we'll do a lot of that this weekend. And yet I hope as we do that, as we talk with one another, as we reflect back on what Loma Linda means to us, I love the way our pastor for modern worship, Josh Jameson, put it last week as he announced this weekend in our anthem worship service to the younger adults, many of them. He said, all of us have a little bit of Loma Linda in us. As you remember that, here's what I hope we will all remember. I hope we will remember that woven into the fabric that makes up the DNA of Loma Linda is one word that is inextricably intertwined with everything Loma Linda is about, and it is this one word. The word is service. Service. To continue the teaching and healing ministry of Jesus Christ. Service. For a glimpse at that in the Scriptures, we turn to the New Testament, to the fourth gospel, the book of John, chapter 12. 
As we land in this chapter, chapter 12 of John, we immediately realize that we are nestled in the center of the book. We're right on the hinge where the, where the, where the door opens and turns, where one part of John moves to another. Many scholars say that John is composed of two what they call books. The book of signs first, John 1 to 11, that tells the ministry of Jesus, especially as, as it is marked by the seven signs. Those signs he gave, other gospel writers will call them miracles. John calls them signs. Those signs he gave that were evidences that he was who he claimed to be. Chapters 1 to 11. But then beginning in chapter 12, the chapter we consider today, the pages turn. We move into the second book, the book of glory. They call it the book of glory because that term glory or glorification is used repeatedly to speak of the kind of death by which Jesus will bring glory to God. So we recognize immediately that we are right at the crease in the book. We're right at that point in time when Jesus is stepping away from the kind of active preaching and teaching ministry in which he has been engaged. And he is stepping now into the very direct shadow of the cross. His pathway from this point forward is on a collision course with Calvary. With every succeeding verse, with every succeeding scene, we get closer and closer to Calvary. But it's right here in this context that Jesus says something that speaks of that reality that is woven into Loma Linda's DNA, that reality called service. He does so especially in verse 24 of chapter 12 of John, but we'll read the whole piece to set the context. John 12, beginning in verse 20. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The hour has come. Numerous times in John's gospel, that term, his hour, or the hour, or his time, appears. It appears and reappears. It is indicating that moment when Jesus will be glorified at Calvary, when he will shed light on the depth of the Father's love for us. But throughout the gospel, at different moments in time, people push in that direction. The temptation lies to declare himself. And each time it says, it's not my time, it's not my hour, my hour has not yet come. 
But now in John 12, as we turn the page on the book of signs and enter the book of glory, he says, the hour has come. The time has arrived. Father, glorify your name in what is about to occur. It is in that context that Jesus, in verse 24, makes a statement that sheds light, sheds light on what one prolific preacher said was life's most urgent question. It was in Birmingham, Alabama, 1957, before a congregation that Martin Luther King Jr. stood up, and in the midst of what he preached that day, he asked this question. He made this statement. Life's most pressing question is, what are you doing for others? That, said King, is life's most urgent question. What are you doing for others? I would suggest it is, it is highlighted and it is contained within verse 24. Just notice verse 24 again. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. In other words, if that kernel is only concerned about itself, it remains alone. When it dies, it dies. It's over. But Jesus says, if it is cast into the furrow of the world's need, it will result in an abundant harvest. Maybe it would be good to consider that verse and the one that immediately follows it, only this time from Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, The Message. Here's how Peterson rendered those verses. Listen carefully. Unless a grain of wheat is buried in the ground, dead to the world, it is never any more than a grain of wheat. But if it is buried, it sprouts and reproduces itself many times over. In the same way, anyone who holds on to life just as it is destroys that life. But if you let go, reckless in your love, you'll have it forever real and eternal. Maybe that's what. Maybe he was thinking of this passage, MLK Jr., when he said to that congregation gathered before him, life's most urgent question, its most piercing, penetrating, probing, prying question is, what are you doing for others? It strikes me that that's not a question we ask once. It's a question which we ought to encounter time and again. Should it not be the question that the mom asked the child who comes home from school complaining about everyone else, honey, what are you doing for others? Should it be the question that is uppermost in the speaker's mind as the college graduates gather in the lobby and as the strains of pomp and circumstance fill the place and as those proud graduates stride down to their place, they've accomplished something dramatic. Should not the speaker, though, stand up and say, the question you must answer is, what are you doing for others? Or what about that high day? When you and family gather on the mall of Loma Linda University, 
School of Medicine, School of Pharmacy, School of Dentistry. Or you and family gather in the enclave we call Drayson Center. The other schools there gathered. You and family gather. Allied health, public health, behavioral health, religion. People gathered there. What a high day. I've heard faculty tell students, if you get discouraged in your journey through Loma Linda, go to graduation. Watch them call the name. See them grasp the sheepskin. Listen to their family cheer. Watch as they stand and rally for what has been accomplished. In that context, is it not the case that one speaker or another, someone should ask the question, what are you doing for others? That day you walk into your practice for the first time as a marriage and family therapist, a dentist, Physician, that day you get your new job, physical therapist, dental hygiene person. Now, you are walking into this new place. You will be working with other people. Should it not be uppermost to ask that question, what am I going to do consistently for others? And what about that day when they put that golden watch on your wrist and when the golf course beckons? And it's time to sit back on the laurels of all of your accomplishments. Should it not somewhere echo through our hearts and minds, what will I do for others? It is life's most piercing question. And that's what Jesus says. There he stands, a dusty, itinerant teacher, stands in the shadow of the religion of his day, hears that somebody now from another place, another land, another community comes and says, we want to see that teacher. And in that, Jesus realizes my message is now going far abroad. And because of that, my time is very short. And so he turns to his followers and he says, just understand this. He's trying to prepare them for what's about to come. Just understand this. If I don't cast myself into the furrow of the world's need... When my life is over, it's all over. But if as a seed I am cast into the furrow of the world's need, dead to my own self and desires, then one day this globe will see Something the likes of which it will never have seen, captured maybe better than anyone else by James Allen Farmer a a hundred years ago who said all the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that have ever sailed, all the parliaments that have ever set, all the queens and kings that have ever reigned have not affected the fate of this planet more than one solitary life. 
Because that life at a place called Calvary was cast into the furrow of the world's need. And when it died, we were born. And so Jesus speaks to them as he speaks to us. Makes a statement that would later be restated by MLK as life's most urgent question. What are you doing, Randy, for others? Service is the word. I don't know that Jesus' words in this setting have been better summarized than in a book entitled Desire of Ages. The woman, diminutive in size, but large in vision. The one who was the key founder of this place called Loma Linda, her name Ellen White, writing about this passage said this, All who would bring forth fruit as workers together with Christ must first fall into the ground and die. The life must be cast into the furrow of the world's needs. Self-love, self-interest must perish. And the law of self-sacrifice is the law of self-preservation. The husbandman preserves his grain by casting it away. So in human life, to give is to live. Don't miss that. To give is to live. The life that will be preserved is the life that is freely given in service to God and man. Those for who Christ sacrificed those who for Christ sacrificed their life in this world will keep it to life eternal. The life spent on itself is like the grain that is eaten. It disappears, but there's no increase. A man may gather all he can for self. He may live and think and plan for self, but his life passes away and he has nothing. The law of self-serving is the law of self-destruction. Maybe the best summary of what Jesus said is contained in those simple words, to give is to live. And it's to bring life to others. It is in the act of serving others that we are truly born to life. And that service is woven into the purpose, the mission of Loma Linda. I'm not saying that because it's on a website or on a letterhead or on a business card. I'm saying it because I have seen it. I have watched you do it as a chaplain, as a pastor, and on occasion as a patient. I have watched it. I have seen the bloodshot eyes that speak weariness slightly sagging shoulders, bearing the burdens of others, a step that isn't as lively as the age might suggest should be. And then I've seen that person enter yet another room and listen and share and pray and heal. I've seen it. I've seen it in the classroom 
Times when I've had the magnificent privilege of, of team teaching and having others from other healthcare professions come in and share with the students. I saw it this last week. Third-year medical students being exposed to the kind of compassion which they will be called upon to express. Two of our alumni, John and Monica Klein, coming and talking to those third-year students, sharing the wrenchingly sad story of the loss of their son. I was glad I was on the back row because I just kept wiping away tears. And I kept watching the students. I saw them with rapt attention. When it was over, they lined up to talk to the Kleins. Had the privilege of talking with different people afterwards. And just the understanding that all of the book learning, as vital, as essential, as irreplaceable as it is, is not enough. Because there comes an end to that when you no longer can make a difference. And that is the time when you decide, am I in this as a career or am I in this as a calling? And Jesus calls me to this bedside to represent his compassion. It will be so much easier to say I'm sorry and walk out the door to preserve myself at that moment, we must remember that careworn, itinerant rabbi who says, the one who casts themselves into the furrow of the world's need and dies, that one will not only live, but will bring forth an abundant harvest. Do you know how that happens? That happens when a physician here, a nurse there, a respiratory tech there takes seriously Jesus' words so that then later two bereaved parents sit and talk to a class and say it was those medical professionals that saved us. And then you have 160, 170 whose hearts and lives are touched and who say that, that, is what I'm called to. I don't just say service is central because it's on our masthead. I've seen it. I've experienced it. Just had my annual physical, my least favorite day of the year, <laughs> with my primary care physician whom I've had for years, Dr. Todd Martell, he and his staff asking me questions. His assistant saying, well, you know, sorry, but I have to ask this. Are, are you drinking alcohol? <laughs> Only occasionally. <laughs> no man. Smoking, no man. All the questions. And then Dr. Martell asking questions that most people don't ask. 
And at the end, gripping my hand and saying, let's pray. That's service. I've seen it among leaders. Leaders for whom I pray every day. Leaders that I wonder how they sleep at night because of the burdens that must feel like they're going to crush the life out. Every morning early I walk this space. Pray for all of us here, but especially remembering people like Dr. Hart, Ron Carter, Rod Neal, all the deans, those on the university side, and then Trevor Wright, Lyndon Edwards, Angela Lalas, all the VPs. Just pray for the grace of God to sustain them. Praying for our physician leadership, Richard Peverini and so many others, just praying, God, you have called us to service, but service can sap the life out of us, so there has to be something that's filling us that can only be your spirit. So if we're dying, you have to be giving life. And I've watched them. And I see service. So when I read these words, to give is to live, and I think that's Loma Linda. It's not something from a business card or a letterhead. It's woven into the fabric of this place of which we're honored to be a part. And it all emanates from a young rabbi for whom the sands in the hourglass of his life have almost run out. And he says, don't worry. Because by casting myself into the furrow of the world's need at a place called Calvary, there will come an abundant harvest to God made up of every nation, kindred, tongue, and people that will one day stand before the throne and will sing, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Because of his service to God and to us, so I was a young adult when I read two books that made a rather profound impact on my life. They were written by two writers, one a physician, one a writer, Dr. Paul Brand and Philip Yancey. The books were entitled Fearfully and Wonderfully Made and In His Image. And they took the lessons from the human body and applied them to the spiritual body of Christ. They made a deep impact in my life. So I was incredibly privileged later to be able to meet both in person. Was very saddened now in the early 2000s, now about 20 years ago, when Dr. Brand went to his rest. After which Philip Yancey took those two books and he revised them and combined them into one. A book entitled Fearfully and Wonderfully, the which if you haven't read, you've missed something special. I'll read you just one comment from Amazon about the book. 
Joined renowned leprosy surgeon Dr. Paul Brand and best-selling writer Philip Yancey on a remarkable journey through inner space, a spellbinding account of medical intervention, pain and healing, and the courage of humanity. Discover here the eternal truths revealed by our seemingly ordinary existence. The human body is a window into the very structure of God's creation and a testament to God's glory. And that's what I found there. I suppose it was because of all of that background when I ran across a piece that appeared in Leadership Journal and then in Christianity Today, it drew me in immediately. It was the story of the dedication of a retirement center. It came right at the end of the, of the article. A retirement center was being dedicated, and it had a new resident, somebody who was moving into the retirement center, having retired and now being late in life. His name, Dr. Paul Brandt. I want to read to you what Steve Moore, who at that time, the time of the writing, was vice president of Asbury Theological Seminary in Wilmore, Kentucky. Here's what he wrote. The ceremony included remarks from one of the new residents, Dr. Paul Brandt, an outstanding medical doctor. Most of us know him through his best-selling book co-written with Philip Yancey, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made. When it was Dr. Brandt's turn to speak, he said something like this. I remember well when I was at my physical peak. I was 27 years old and had just finished medical school. A group of friends and I were mountain climbing, and we would climb for hours. For some people, when they cross that peak, life for them is over. I remember well my mental peak, too. I was 57 years of age. Don't be a hater. I was 57 years of age and was performing groundbreaking hand surgery. All of my medical training was coming together in one place. For some people, when they cross this peak, for them, life is over. I'm now over 80 years of age. I recently realized I'm approaching another peak, my spiritual peak. All I have sought to become as a person has the opportunity to come together in wisdom, maturity, kindness, love, joy, and peace. And I realize when I cross that peak, for me, life will not be over. It will just have begun. Does that sound to you like those words to give is to live? Does that sound to you like those words, cast yourself into the furrow of the world's need? And the result will be life and abundance. Same writer Philip Yancey tells of Albert Einstein, the great scientist, coming to a point in his life when he removed two pictures from his wall, two great scientists, Newton and Maxwell, and he replaced them with two other pictures, Gandhi and Schweitzer. When asked why he changed, he said, I just realized, rather than celebrating success, it's now time to celebrate service. With all due respect to Einstein, and fully agreeing with his sentiment, I would suggest there might be another image that speaks to it 
even more deeply. And that's the image of an old rugged cross on a hill far away where death seemed to dominate the day. But because this was an act of choice, a choice to serve, that cross will forever stand for life and hope. Find more podcasts, videos, church events, and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at LLUC.org.